Thank you so much. Good morning. Well, Memorial Day weekend helps us to be able to distinguish between celebration and commemoration. We celebrate. We are involved in celebration, say, on the 4th of July, but we're involved in commemoration when it comes to something like Memorial Day weekend because we are recalling how many gave their lives for our national freedom. But just as we're recalling how many gave their lives for our national freedom, it's the Lord's Day, and so we're recalling likewise about the one who laid down his life for our eternal freedom in Jesus Christ, and how one illustrates the other. So what I'd love for you to do now is to turn your Bibles to the book of Exodus. We've been involved in First John, haven't we, since the beginning of January, but we're pausing. We'll be pausing periodically in the next five or so weeks to either commemorate or celebrate in these coming Sundays some of the various events that God brings our way. And Memorial Day weekend gives us that opportunity. So we're making our way today to Exodus chapter 14 that deals with the story of the parting of the Red Sea. What I've done through the course of my 35 years in pastoral ministry is to pause on weekends like this and to look at various battle scenes described in the scriptures and to ask what life principles can be drawn from them that can relate to modern day life, always wanting to be relevant. So today, 2017 Living, we want to go back in time and bridge from past to present and see what we can find here. What I'm going to do is to read from verse 1 down to verse 9. It's going to serve as a springboard, okay? A springboard by which we're going to be able to understand the context for verse 10 through verse 31 as we're going to look at various distinctives of how God is at work in what you and I might call extreme conditions. In verse 1, we're told, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi, Haharath, between Migdal and the sea, from Baal, Zephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say, the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Well, and then the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, and the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people and they said, what is this we've done, that they have let Israel go from serving us? Pause to simply say at this point, they realized that their entire economy, in essence, was based upon slavery. They had enslaved the Israelites. They are feeling threatened now by this decision to let the Israelites go because they're going to be in economic straits. So you've got to understand now the economic thinking behind Pharaoh at this point. So in verse 6, he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt 
with the officers over all of them. I pause again to say that the Hyksos, which were the population that overthrew the prior regime of Egypt in ancient history, were the ones that brought the chariot and horses into military matters. So now you have even archaeological evidence to support the biblical account that you're reading here. I just wanted to interject that to be able to, again, show that God is sovereign in the scriptures and sovereign over history and all over time as well. This is incredible when you begin to think about that. Now you read on in verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel. Well, the people of Israel were going out defiantly. And the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi Haharath in front of Baal Siphon. So that sets the stage as we now look to the Lord in prayer. Memorial Day weekend. We want to honor those who laid down our, their lives for our national freedom. Through the decades, what families have found is a chair empty around the table. And there would be people swallowing hard as they think about the sacrifice that was made. And so, Father, we want to pay due respect where respect is due and honor the fallen. On this Lord's Day, at the same time, we want to not only consider the ones who laid down their lives for our national freedom, but for the one who laid down his life for our eternal freedom, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for our sins, breaks the power of sin upon its return in the future, abolishes the presence of sin. What we find here now is the work of our Lord. Father, you are sovereign over all. You are sovereign over this world. You are sovereign over our lives. And on this Lord's Day, we want to honor you. We want to build a bridge from the story told in this chapter into the experiences that we encounter in our lives. So in these minutes you give us to be together. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was the time when Japan invaded China. And Gladys Alwood, who was a missionary to China, was forced to flee when the Japanese invaded Yongqing. But her biographers tell us that she could not leave her work behind. And with only one assistant, 
she led more than 100 orphans over the mountains toward free China. If you've ever pulled up The End of the Sixth Happiness with Ingrid Bergman, it's the movie based upon this real-life story. Well, in their book, The Hidden Price of Greatness, Ray Besson and Renaud Amak tell what happened next. During Gladys's harrowing journey out of war-torn Yongqing, she grappled with despair as never before. And after passing a sleepless night, she faced the morning with no hope of reaching safety. But there was a 13-year-old girl that she had been tutoring in the group who reminded her of their much-loved story of Moses and the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. But I'm not Moses, Gladys cried out in despair. Of course you're not, said the girl. But God is still God. Ever have one of those moments? We're told that when Gladys and the orphans made it through, they proved once again that no matter how inadequate we feel, God is still God. And we can trust him. Faith which can't be tested is faith which can't be trusted. And now, what the Israelites have done after having put faith in the shed blood placed upon those doorposts known as the Passover that allowed for the people of Israel to leave Egypt, now their faith will be tested once again as they find themselves hemmed in by all forces with the Red Sea before them. You ever felt all hemmed in? No place to go. No options remaining. What I want to do with you from this battle scene story this morning is to simply draw out three distinctives about God that we find here. Because God is still God, no matter what we've experienced in life. And allow for these distinctives to speak directly to the way in which we are facing the issues of the hour today. And the first begins here in verse 10. We're going to take it down through verse 18. Then number one, when facing extreme conditions, first of all, reflect upon the purposes of God. The purposes of God. Remember this. God reveals enough to make our faith intelligent, doesn't he? God conceals enough to allow our faith to grow. And so now they're going to have to deal with the blend of the revealing and the concealing in their own extreme condition. And so you pick it up now in verse 10, that when Pharaoh drew near... The people of Israel lifted up their eyes. Can you, can you feel what they're feeling at this point? 
they are utterly exhausted from years of enslavement. They find their freedom, and as soon as they found their freedom, and they thought they got some forward momentum, lo and behold, they are hemmed in. It's as if forward progress has been halted suddenly. Ever had your forward progress halted suddenly? Well, the Egyptians are marching here in verse 10 after them, and you can almost feel the fears that are surfacing. It's not only individually, it's felt collectively. It's a they. They feared greatly. And so I want you to notice here what comes next. You're in verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. That's good. They've still got that vertical dimension in mind here. But what you've got to bear in mind is that God is invisible. But at the same time, when you're going through what we are describing here as these extreme conditions, even though God is invisible, God is involved. Never assume because God is invisible that God is not involved. He is orchestrating events hidden to the eyes of the average person, which requires not eyesight as much as insight from God's word. But now it's target practice, you see, because while God is invisible, Moses is visible. And so Moses becomes the target to the people. You got a target in your life in your extreme conditions. Is it fair or unfair? They said to Moses, and they come in the form of a series of questions. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? The emphasis upon you. Not God at this point. A second question. What have you done to us? What have you done to us? Not for us. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Third question. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone. Just leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Man, talk about selective memories, which is a danger in extreme conditions. We tend to simply narrow the past to what was favorable in the present rather than seeing the complete context of the past and why we are now where we are in the present. Sometimes extreme conditions afflict us in our ability to be able to gain perspective on life. Where's God? What's God doing at this point? What we want to do at this point, then, is ponder this whole matter of the purpose of God. Why is God allowing for these things to happen? 
I penned two thoughts as I was studying these verses that deal with grappling with trust in the purposes of God. One, trust God. Even when his reasons seem hidden, when you don't know why he's doing what he's doing, when you don't know why he's permitting what he's permitting, are you willing to trust God even when his reasons seem hidden? A second thought. Trust God even when our options seem limited. In some cases, you may feel this morning as though I'm out of options. Where do I turn from here? Now what God will do, and notice here that they are encamped in front of this place called Pi Parath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Safan. Baal Safan. In the place of Baal Safan, you see the word Baal there? God, this is not where I want to be. You ever been there? And why does God seem to design these Baal-Safans for us in our journeys in life? Could it be that what God wants to do with the Israelites at this point is to break their Egyptian worldview? It's very polytheistic. The Egyptians didn't have a sense of God being the preeminent God. They had a pluralistic view, perhaps prominent, but not preeminent. Oh, he could do mighty things with those plagues, but couldn't our magicians along the way do some things as well? This might have been the mindset of the Egyptian. But what you and I have to do when we find ourselves in extreme conditions is to ask ourselves, if I embrace in any way, shape, or form, quote, unquote, my own form of an Egyptian worldview, that God wants to break down in order to have a true Yahweh worldview, a sovereign God worldview, God, and God alone. God ever done that with you? Find yourself in extreme conditions? I want you to check out with me three significant now directives that Moses delivered on the spot. It's brilliant. For a time such as this. After being questioned, and he's target practice, Moses said to the people, and here's the first directive, fear not. Now, bear in mind, he's got to deal with the same issues of fear as they do. But what he's doing is he's drawing upon the richness of the teachings of the fear nots in the prior verses that the Holy Spirit would have him pen, such as in Genesis chapter 15 of verse 1. 
For after these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Using the imagery of a military shield for the issues that Abram would confront. We've got a fear not moment here on our hands. Fear not's the first directive. Do you need to embrace that in your own life experience right now? Here's the second one. Stand firm. But what do I do when I stand firm? See the salvation of the Lord. He doesn't say, see the salvation of Moses. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Now, Moses is going public with his faith. Hasn't happened yet. When you go public with your faith in the midst of extreme conditions, people are paying attention. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And here comes your third directive now. You have only to be silent. Fear not. Stand firm. Be silent. Which means that in extreme conditions, you and I have got to be able to distinguish between spiritual passivity and biblical patience. Passivity is self-directed. Patience is God-directed. Waiting in life tends to be the rule rather than the exception. Chester Puller was a highly decorated Marine officer in command over a large number of men in combat, inadvertently moved into an area that was crawling with enemy, when suddenly he realized that his men were surrounded, surrounded. To the north lay a platoon of the enemy, as well as uh, both on his flanks to the rear, another company, all escape routes were closed off. So what did Puller do? Just tightened his fist and said, that's outstanding. They'll never get away this time. Ponder the purposes of God when your roots are closed off. And when the challenge is to look around you, the Moseses of this world say, look above you. Don't let extreme conditions shape your view of God. Let God shape your view of your extreme conditions. So now you pick it up here in verse 15, and in the midst of extreme conditions, Moses is having a devotional time. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? 
tell the people of Israel to go forward. And Moses is saying to himself, I'm about to tell the people to go forward. To go forward. My GPS doesn't have that. Go around, yes. Go forward, no. But that's not all. In verse 16, God goes on to say to Moses, Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Now sometime in your studies, do a word study of the word staff and how Moses used that in the land of Egypt. For the Egyptians, this was nothing more than a staff infection. Every time he seemed to hold that staff in hand, another plague was coming their way. It was symbolizing something of significance. Now, why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff. And now that ministers to Moses, you see, because in the experiences of Egyptian life. God does not waste experiences. God invests experiences. And in the extremes of your life, God doesn't want to waste your experiences. God wants to invest your experiences. Moses holds that staff, and he ponders that staff as it relates to the way in which it was positioned in his hand in the days in which they were in Egypt. And if God could intervene in those days, he has now got a physical symbol of the fact that God can intervene in this day. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. That the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Get what comes next. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. So they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. But draw a line between, I will harden their hearts in verse 17, and what happens in verse 18, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. They shall know that I am the Lord. They must have been reading First John. Only they couldn't have been reading First John because First John had not yet been penned yet. But the Apostle John knew this story because throughout First John, you will find again and again and again as we've studied together the emphasis upon knowing God, not merely informationally, personally. But why the hardness of the heart? When you and I begin to ponder the purpose of the plagues, 
we've got to bear in mind that they were, the purpose was evangelistic. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, so that you, speaking of Pharaoh, you may know, there's that word again, that I am the Lord. A personal relationship with God. But you see, the gift of grace here, the gift of mercy, had no effect on Pharaoh at this point. And only a remnant of the Egyptians were going to respond. If you check out Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, you will find that this is a mixed multitude. There were some Egyptians that were with the Israelites at this point. What I want you to see, if you study carefully the plagues that took place in Egypt, is that Pharaoh repeatedly hardened his own heart ten times during the first five plagues. And then Pharaoh's heart was hardened ten times during plagues six, eight through ten. It's as if, if you've ever been in a committee or a board, somebody has worked very hard, you see, very hard, to create a motion. Phrased it, worked it out, finally they present the motion, and immediately somebody seconds the motion. It's as if Pharaoh has gone out of his way to work very hard to make the motion of the hardness of the heart, and God then seconds the motion. Because what is going on here is we've got to understand that in the opening plagues, we find God's permissive will. In essence, saying, Pharaoh, have it your way. And then the remaining plagues, you find God's directive will seconding the motion in the time of the permissive will, where God now, in essence, is broken in to achieve his purpose. God will withdraw, leave an individual alone for a period of time, so that his or her actions, after the time, person's time of mercy has expired, force them to address the issues of the heart. There's a shelf life here. And so you look at this, and in verse 17, God takes credit. He's purposeful. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. They will go in after them. I will get glory over Pharaoh, all his hosts, his chariots, his horsemen, and the Egyptians. And here's the evangelistic purposefulness of it all just like for the plagues, shall know that I am the Lord. Not merely information, no personal. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians at this point will be primarily then members of the mixed multitude that are making their way through the Red Sea. The purposes of God. James Angel, who did a lot of research on the life of Abraham Lincoln, tells of the time when Lincoln and his partner Barry were standing on the for front porch of their business in Illinois. Business was all dried up. Barry asked, how much longer do you think we can keep going? Lincoln answered, it looks like our business has just winked out. 
Uh, you know, I wouldn't mind so much if I could just do what I want to do. I, I want to study law. I wouldn't mind so much if we could sell everything. We've got pay all our bills, have just enough left over to buy one book, Blackstone's Commentary on English Law. A few days later. Strange-looking wagons coming down the road. Driver comes up close to the store porch. Man looks up at Abraham Lincoln, says, I am trying to move my family west. I'm out of money. Got a good barrel on here. I could sell for 50 cents. Angel tells us, Lincoln's eyes went along over the wagon, came to the wife, looking at him pleadingly, face thin, emaciated. Lincoln ran his head into his pocket, took out, according to him, the last 50 cents I had. This said, I reckon I could use a good barrel. Angel tells us all day long the barrel sat on the porch. Occasionally, Lincoln looked down on the barrel. And finally, he looked and he inspected it, and with that long arm, had it downward, spotted something at the bottom, fumbled around, solid, pulls out a book, stands petrified. It's the commentary of on English law by Blackstone. Angel records Barry of having quoted Lincoln in these words. I stood there holding the book, looking upward. There came a deep impression on me that Providence had something for me to do and was showing me now I had better get ready for it. Why this miracle otherwise? God does not waste the experiences, you see, of life. And so there's a purposefulness of this, that the multitude will know God. We sang just before this study, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, so that everyone might know your name. Now, what I want you to do is to wed together the purposes of God in 10 through 18 with the second distinctive, the presence of God in 19 and 20. And bear this in mind. They've got to make absolutely certain they understand that the extreme circumstances, conditions of life, are temporal and God's promises are eternal. And not make their extreme conditions eternal. And God's promises temporal. Because God had made an everlasting promise that the Israelites would inherit the land of Canaan. He promised it. Hebrew word for everlasting, delivered to Abram. So if God is God, and God keeps his promises, then the promise guides me through the purposes of life, and the promise guides me through the presence of God in my life. And you're asking, well, if he is invisible, does that mean that he could still be involved? Yes. Now in 19, I want you to notice three significant phrases. We're going to have italicized. 
that leap out of these verses. Then the angel of God, who is going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near, near the other all night. Now, did you spot those three phrases? Do you have eyes? Do you have the eyesight for the insight here? Notice the phrase going before. Then the angel of God who was going before, draw a line down to the phrase stood behind at the end of verse 19 and connected to the coming between of verse 20. Now what you've got then is the purpose of God and the presence of God working in tandem before, behind, between. As God is achieving purpose for his glory. When Napoleon started to fight England and Austria, his soldiers used to call him 100,000 men. And when they would go into battle, they would ask one another, is 100,000 men in the army today? Because that's how much they viewed Napoleon as being worth to them. We can do better in the battles of life. If God be for us, who can be against us? I love what David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, once said. Anyone who doesn't believe in miracles isn't a realist. And so now, here they are. All hemmed in. Their GPS might be saying something different than what God is saying. Who has supreme directiveness in this moment? You connect the purposes of God, 10 through 18, with the presence of God here, 19 and 20, which leads you now thirdly into the power of God, beginning in verse 21 through 31. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove, not Moses, the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, made the sea dry land. And the waters, the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand. I'm sure they would love for some building inspectors to check out the reliability of those two walls, you see. But the real issue is not the reliability of the walls, but the reliability of their God. 23. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. Remember, as I said earlier, the Hyksos, 
were the ones that brought this idea of chariot warfare to the forefront. So historically, we're accurate here. In 24, in the morning, watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces, threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, and now in 25, clogging their chariot wheels. So they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel. Evangelistic moment of realization. For the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. But the problem is there's a shelf life here on this matter of mercy. He was merciful in each of those plagues up to this point. They'd seen the staff in Moses' hand. But now, God in essence is saying, have it your way. I second that motion. Because the devotional life of Moses with God continues now in 26. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians and upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. In other words, God has been so merciful all the way along. He's used each of these plagues up to this point to get their attention so that they would know that God is God. Expiration point. So Moses in 27 stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, for all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. That's justice. That's justice in verse 28. Here's mercy in verse 29. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The mixed multitude. The ones who knew God. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Where in your Newer Testament do you see justice and mercy simultaneously demonstrated? cross of Jesus Christ. Cross of Jesus Christ. They're not contradictory. They're complementary. I love what comes next. Realization moment. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, Israel saw the great power. That's why we're getting this final heading, the power of God. Israel in 31 saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And when in those evangelistic moments, you find as though God is broken into the extreme circumstances of life and allows for those conditions to give you a testimony it has generational as well as international impact because the next generation, when, two, when these spies entered into the promised land and were housed in Rahab's home 
And in chapter 2 of Joshua, verse 8, the men lay down. She came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know, and there's that word again, that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. But I'm not Moses. Gladys cries out in desperation. Of course you aren't, the girl says. But God is still God. And when Gladys Alwood and the orphans made it through, it was a memorial moment. They proved once again that no matter how inadequate we feel, God is still God. And even in 2017 and beyond, we can trust him. Let's stand together. For the person that's wrestling spiritually with your purposes for his or her life, minister now to that soul. For the person now who is wrestling with your presence in his or her life, speak to that heart. For that individual who is grappling with the power of God. Reveal itself to that heart. Help us not to presume on your mercy. Embrace your grace that we might know you. That we might know you through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Your promises are eternal. Our extreme circumstances are temporal. We focus on you and you alone. For this we give you all the praise now. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.